Attention listeners, do you ever find yourself struggling to decide what to watch on a Saturday night when you're in the mood for horror? Or perhaps you're trying to round out your own horror film education. In either case, I'm sure you'll be able to make some great discoveries in my 10x10 Horror Watch List, featuring a breakdown of the 10 favorite horror movies from 10 renowned horror directors. We did a deep dive of the favorite horror movies from directors including Guillermo del Toro, Ari Aster, Jordan Peele, Quentin Tarantino, James Gunn, Rob Zombie, Martin Scorsese, and many, many more. Here you'll find a collection of each director's favorite horror movies, along with quotes about what they appreciated about the films, all in an easy-to-reference PDF that you can download absolutely free. Featuring a mix of well-worn classics and deep cuts, hopefully you'll discover some overlooked gems and look at old classics through new lenses. Download the 10x10 Horror Watch List for free by visiting nicktaylor.com slash horrorguide. That's nicktaylor.com slash horrorguide. Welcome back to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. John Adams, Lulu Adams, Zelda Adams, and Toby Poser are a family who write, produce, star in, and edit all of their films themselves. Together, they've produced multiple features, including Knucklejack, Rumble Strips, The Hatred, The Deeper You Dig, and most recently, Hellbender, which you can watch right now on Shudder on The Last Drive-In with Joe Bob Briggs. With Hellbender, the family shot the movie around the country during the pandemic using gear that they bought themselves. The Adams Family are one of the most self-sufficient filmmaking outfits I've ever seen. They make all of their movies entirely on their own, and they don't rely on any traditional studio ecosystems whatsoever. As filmmakers, they do a particularly beautiful job of leaning into their relatively low budgets by making very singular and unique movies where every detail feels intentional. This is a testament to one of their greatest strengths as filmmakers, which is their resourcefulness. This conversation is a great lesson in economic filmmaking and low-budget features that don't feel low-budget because the filmmakers embraced what they had access to. I really loved this conversation. The Adams Family are a bunch of very enthusiastic, inspiring, and passionate filmmakers with a lot to teach all of us. Now, please enjoy this conversation with The Adams Family. All right, we got the Adams family in the house. So wonderful meeting you guys. Um, thank you for being here, first and foremost. Thank We're you. Fired up. Thank you. Um, saw Hellbender last week and really loved it. Um, I it took uh, five minutes in. I realized, like, oh, these are the guys who did the deeper they dig, and I didn't know too much about the backstory of you guys as a family, but. From what I understand, obviously you guys are all a family and you make the movies yourselves. You buy the gear, you edit the movies, you score the movies. You guys essentially have your own filmmaking ecosystem. And uh, I think that's incredible, particularly, you know, in a family context. Could you walk us through your overall kind of family-based production infrastructure and how you guys operate? Yeah, well, we started out 10 years ago. So we've all slowly figured out what facets of making film we're each good at. So I think 
we let each other do their specialties. For example, Toby's a great writer. She generally writes things out for us. Um, Zelda's a terrific cinematographer, and Lulu also. Both of them have very good like visual intelligence. Um, I'm good, I think, at coming up with nasty things to do. And, <laughs> and um, together we put those things together and, and let people run. But the final answer, and I think anybody else can say whatever they want about this, is we all do it all. So ultimately, some days Lulu's the best director, and she just nails it because for some, for whatever reason, that day she really understood what we needed to accomplish and how. Yeah, that's cool. So you guys are able to just kind of, as a unit, ebb and flow, and one of you'll jump in as needed, and you'll make the movies that way. That's wonderful. I mean, I, I feel like it speaks to a really good internal sort of communication system. I mean, you guys are a family. Um, so, I mean, the shorthand must be fantastic. Um, really curious about, I mean, you guys as parents, what was their cinematic education like looking or as they grew up? What were the movies you wanted to show them at what points in time? We've never uh, been very restrictive about what our kids can or can't watch or, or with any kind of art. We tend to think it's, it's stronger to um, give your kids freedom to watch what they're interested in watching. And if that, has to be, if that happens to be Carrie when you're eight years old, then go for it. You know, let's talk about it. Um, they're just gonna like, you know, if they were like me, they would just do it in private if they were told they couldn't do it. So- uh, That's what I so, did. <laughs> and and uh, so we, um, yeah, we're kind of just, we're a real democracy. Uh, their education, a lot of, you know, as far as making films, we all also learned that together since Zelda was six and Lulu was 11. So whether we're watching it or making it, it's just we're all on equal footing. As a parent, also, they've actually taught us, they've been the ones who brought the movies to us. For example, Dad, you got to watch Step Brothers. Oh, I don't know. Sit down and watch it. It's amazing. Okay, you sit down. Dad, you got to watch Raw. Mm, I don't know. Sit down and watch it. It's amazing. And every single time I get up and I think, damn, I never would have watched that. And it's amazing. And it's really great. So who gets educated mostly in film is these, these two are bringing us stuff and saying, sit down and watch it. That's awesome. So it's cinematic education goes both ways. Sure does. Totally. And as a family, about every night or so, sometimes when we're trying to find inspiration or something, or we know we're working on a new horror or a country or something, we'll all do movie night and take turns watching movies that we all recommend and just sit and watch and be like, oh, I really like how they did that. That kind of shot is really cool in that era. Like taking influence from other things as well and then talking about it, you know. That's super cool. That brings, <laughs> yeah. That, well, that brings the idea of family movie night to a whole new dimension you know because you guys can look at a movie and go hey we should do that for our next movie and then that leads you guys to i don't know possibly come up with a script or an idea i mean that's just very cool i'm very envious so you guys started out with um comedies and then took a real hard dive into horror with deeper you dig which i mean as far as i was concerned there were some sequences in there that were some of the most disturbing I've seen in a long time. The um, Toby, the image of you with the red nose, i it's like the stuff of nightmares. It's stuck in my consciousness. I can't get over it. There's something so terrifying about it. Um, it feels like it's like straight out of hell. So how did you guys make such a stark transition from comedy into, uh, into horror, not just horror, but horror at this level? Generous. First of all, and that scene uh, that you're talking about, 
is visually horrible, but also emotionally really horrible. And then it's talk about family. It's added on an added horror is that that's Toby's mother in that scene who was very close to also coming up to the end of her life. And there's a there's an emotional impact to that that scene that like the the audience doesn't know. But Toby and I knew and were feeling it as we were shooting it. So it's like there is an injection uh, a hidden horror element in that scene that's pretty intense too. Um, so it's a good like mention, right? I mean, pretty heavy duty. So yeah, there was a, um, something about that scene. There's a depth to it that is yeah. it's bottomless. There's something about it. I knew that there was some personal connection because there's something about it that's so resonant and strong um, and deeply unsettling and terrifying while being really tragic. <laughs> beautiful of you to say because it was a it was a we were capturing something maybe that we didn't even know we were capturing but we kind of did yeah you know? so um there was another element to that question though but about, um about you might, might want to talk about the hatred um so oh how we got from like comedy to uh, oh yeah yeah yeah. yeah um toby was writing a script and zelda came up with an idea she was like dad we should Let's do a horror movie by Toby's writing that script because we're bored as hell and it's winter time and what the hell are we going to do up here in the Catskills? And I was like, oh, I would love to make a horror movie. Let's do it. And she said, okay, good. I just want to make sure that whatever happens, I just kill everybody. Let's make it about like, a young kid that kills everybody. Like, <laughs> Sounds even better. And I don't know. You want to pick it up from there, Z? What happened? No, yeah, it was just really fun. It was one of the first times that we actually shot in winter and we really discovered the beauty of shooting in winter. It can, first of all, it's terrifying, but mm. also, you know, it just adds so much to the horror aspect of it. And uh, yeah, we fell in love just with making horror. Um, we got into some festivals with our first movie, The Hatred. It was only like an hour and five minutes long, but we got into some festivals and got introduced to the horror crowd and they were just so welcoming and they latched onto every detail that you put into your film. And that was when we learned that we just want to keep making horror because you can make whatever rules you want, break whatever rules you want, and you just have so much artistic freedom. So yeah. I think if anyone's listening to this, if you're looking for a world like ripe with metaphor, I say venture into horror. Yeah. Yeah. And I think some of the best horror comes from a very personal place. And it seems like your movies both came from a very personal place um, and seem to deal with some pretty heavy topics metaphorically, like codependency and, you know, difficulties with with certain familial scenarios and, and, and death and things like that. Um, I mean, as a family making movies that deal with such tough subject matter, is there any way by which you guys are able to to process some of these like heavier, heavier themes that come up as you're making these movies? I love that question so much. So I'm going to jump in here. I mean, that I just, yes, is the answer. And I'll go back to something that, again, sounds heavy, but um, with The Deeper You Dig, I was actually going through a, a endometrial cancer while we were shooting that. And so that's a reproductive cancer. So I literally, in the course of that um, shoot, I had two surgeries, one of them completely removing my womb and then another one removing some other, you know, some other stuff. And so that was going on while we were shooting and it was also informing the writing and making it incredibly personal. Uh, and, it, and it was this great metaphor for what was actually happening in the film, this mother who loses her child. For me, a mother who's lost her reproductive, you know, um, 
uh, prowess. So, so it was incredibly, and it was a great way for me to process because instead of sitting at home being like, wah, I'm like, let's fucking shoot. I can walk. Let's use it, you know? Wow. Oh, that's incredible. True method acting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very clear that your movies are very intimate. Like, there's a real depth to them, just like the you know the red nose sequence that we were talking about before. But um, you guys have a very unique aesthetic on top of it, and I feel like there's few filmmakers where you see one of their movies and then you see another one of their movies, and you know it's the same one. They have signatures, you know, like people like Wes Anderson. You can always tell a Wes Anderson movie. Early Tim Burton. Um, you guys have a very distinguishing aesthetic. So I'm wondering, how do you guys describe your aesthetic and how conscious were you in crafting your aesthetic? You just mentioned us with Wes Anderson, so we could just wrap this up because that's like about the biggest compliment. It's like, wait, what? Okay, that's good. We're done. (laughs) That was very cool, right? That's Dee's favorite director. All right. (laughs) I love Wes Anderson. Um, Well, it's interesting, you know, once we made the Deep You Dig, people started like mentioning our aesthetic and stuff like that. And we were like, what's aesthetic? Like what? <laughs> <laughs> so I think we kind of developed a style without even knowing it. But over our course of making films, we've made seven now. You kind of just start to do what feels natural to you. And we started knowing nothing, knowing zero percent. And it's kind of like it forces you to just do what feels right. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in that process of like doing what feels right, it is that part in our brain has allowed us to like, you know, develop our own style. Not necessarily that's like taking inspiration from others, but it's like entirely our own. Yeah. Um, You know, it's interesting. We have a lot of conversations with like audience members and critics and stuff like that. And a lot of people say not to take inspiration from like, other films so that we just keep doing what it is that we do, which is completely like natural and raw. And Mm. I feel like that can be a good piece of advice or else we're just going to try to become like what other people are. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. As we've made movies, we've also found out um, how to continue doing what we like. Like if you watch our very first movie, Rumble Strips, you would see elements that you'll find that you'll see in the deeper you dig and hellbender you'll see elements and those and then you'll see a lot of amateur mistakes a lot of amateur moves a lot of but they're fun and they're beautiful in their own right but they aren't necessarily what we wanted to do we just didn't know any better yeah and so as we kept growing we learned how to do what we wanted mm-hmm. you know and and experience helped us dial into that yeah. Yeah. And from what I understand, you guys operate on pretty fairly low budgets, comparatively low budgets. The movies do not feel low budget. In other words, you guys are super duper resourceful and everything feels very intentional and handcrafted. And um, I feel like it's a huge lesson to indie filmmakers, particularly people getting their first movies off the ground. Any tips on how you guys are able to do that? Because your movies feel pretty seamless and they don't, I don't see the seams, you know. Um, so any either tips on saving money or or being able to kind of use what you have in front of you? Great question. That's well, exactly what I was kind of going to say. Uh, just briefly then, Z. Um, but uh, we do so much stuff with nature and mm-hmm. based around it and our influences from that. Like a lot of 
things in our movies are carcasses that we found where we think, oh my goodness, Whoa. that is fucking insane. We have to hang that up and make a hanging scene with a deer carcass or something. It's a lot of, you know, what do you want to talk about? Like we all have different creative minds and we use things that we find or really cool like mushrooms that you might see in the forest. Let's do a cool mushroom scene where, you know, they're eating these things. Yeah. And yeah, just what, what interests you and how do you want to use that? And then be patient too, because mother nature's a bitch too also. <laughs> but it's it work for you from what you have. You, yeah, definitely. Nature is the best. Uh, she's the best actress. Uh, and she works for free, which is great if you don't have a big budget. Um, I would also say um hiring just like we really like to hire locals and like real people like in the deep you dig we hired the owners of the you know gas station to act in our film and he was amazing and just so true and real and so if you can do that totally recommend that um and we use a canon 5d for all of our movies which is incredibly uh, affordable and but high quality so I would always recommend that technology wise what do you guys you yeah guys? I think everything that you guys have said is really important <laughs> you know nature using locals um, using friends um, you know another thing is is understanding what you're trying to achieve like a lot you don't like for example like if we want a beautiful shot and we want some and we want um, Zelda and Toby to talk in that beautiful shot. Well, there's no way, like we don't have lavs and expensive mics like that. So you have to set that shot up so you can start the conversation in this beautiful setting, but you gotta get in there to record their quality sound. Like yeah. you can't do things, like it's it's a mistake to set out and try to do things that you just cannot produce. Yeah. And so you always have to ask yourself like, what do I wanna do? How can I make it the most beautiful or the most ugly, <clears throat> but just achieve what I want. And so there's a lot of, technological answers that you have to answer in shooting a scene. So a lot of the time we'll have this beautiful scene that we'll show them start their conversations with. But when we get to the meat of the conversation, get in there so that you can hide the mic right under the camera. Don't torture yourself trying to figure out how to do this and ADR an right. entire thing. Like, there's so many times where you can torture yourself by going out, going beyond your production. Hollywood can shoot in the distance and do all this stuff because they have mics that they can hide and they got a million different ways to do it. People like us, we can't do that. Right. Yeah. And I like another thing though is none of us have gone to you know film school and we don't have a big budget, so we don't use artificial lighting. We just use you know raw natural lighting. And I, I, we all think that like that's the best. You know, it looks amazing. But also we've learned to shoot in flat lighting when it's not like super harsh sun. Mm. Um, because in the editing process, you can fuck with it so much. Like you can make it nighttime, you know, adjust the saturation. It looks fantastic. So flat lighting is your best friend. Yeah. Now the natural light is such an awesome aesthetic that you guys have. And I feel like that's another example of just kind of owning whatever limitations there may be. Or could you even call it a limitation? Because the the natural lighting gives it such a distinctive look. Um, Robert Eggers shot The Witch in all natural light, you're probably aware. Um, and that movie looks amazing. Uh, and Hellbender yeah. just looks fantastic. It's like a it's a it's lighting, and you can just kind of tell, like your mind's eye knows that that's real lighting, and it makes the movie even that much more atmospheric and believable. And uh, 
And yeah, so what some might think is a, a drawback, not having actual lights, I feel like it's just, it works and it can work in such favor for your movie. You know, I think particularly in you guys' case, because the movies look fantastic. Hey, I, I also yeah. just want to add one quick thing. I also think, um, you know, you mentioned the word limitations. I think if you, and it might sound cheesy to say, but if you just to completely ignore, like if you think of your limitations as gifts, then you you can only go upward. Like like in other words, and this might sound highfalutin, but if you really are focused on the story, you and rather than the technology that to tell the story for you, you can help but come up with with something beautiful. If you honor what needs to be said in the story more than how you want to make it look, which is important, but you'll find a way. You know, when I walk out of a movie, what I remember most is the story that moved me and touched me than how beautiful it looked. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes that makes a ton of sense. Um, Were there any resources that were fundamental towards your film education, so to speak? Any books, uh, anything that was really helpful for you guys, either creatively when it came to either writing, storytelling, filmmaking, anything, any books, courses, anything that was helpful? Yes. When we first started filmmaking, just no one in particular, but YouTube. How do you edit a film? (laughs) (laughs) How do you like it was amazing what I could learn because I didn't know how to edit. And I was like, Toby had production like she was like, okay, you do all the that crazy production work. I'll edit. So how do you edit? Like, YouTube is your best friend because some 10-year-old kid in Iowa knows how to edit and use Premiere Pro Mm -hmm. and you can ask him questions and in 10 minutes you're off to the races. YouTube helped us so much. That's really cool. It was really cool. Also, I think that if you want to direct, it's a great idea to act in someone, act as well, because one, because you'll know what it's like being on that other side yeah. and, and, and how to talk to actors and get the best performance out of them and realize how difficult it can be, especially if you are working on a set with a lot of people and equipment. It can be hard as an actor to concentrate and, and really the pinnacle is getting a great performance. So I'd say if you're interested in directing, do some acting too. Yeah. And, and we learned so much from festivals, talking to mm. other filmmakers. Like you you just learn so much when you talk to other filmmakers about tricks they know that help you so that you can keep your standards, you know, you can keep raising your standards because other filmmakers, we all love talking to each other. And we all love if we can help somebody out with a small piece of technology that they don't know yet. Yeah. And it just ups their production value. So going to film festivals, and talking with other filmmakers is priceless. Yeah. And when you're at the festival, do those cool seminars that they offer and tutorials and things. I've learned, in fact, the, the mics we use right now, just usually we use two little simple Zoom mics. Mm-hmm. I learned about at a women's film festival in Vancouver, Canada, because I took this two hour you know, seminar on sound. Yeah. And I just did something at another festival and now I know how to make beautiful gashes in my skin, you know? I did a horror makeup seminar. So I, so whenever I go to festivals, I, I love to listen to um, the people talking about who really know their shit. And yeah. I learned 
You learn so much. No, the festivals are incredible. I, I feel like as a community, horror is so strong. Um, and there's there's so much just you know, love in the community. And there's not a lot of com like competition necessarily. There, there's not that competitive vibe. Like everybody wants to help each other. 100%. Yeah. No, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, I would say in addition to, um, to the, the visual aesthetic of the natural light, what you guys do with sound design is equally as intriguing. What, um, because your, your movies sonically are very, very interesting and uh, experiential, and I haven't seen much like it. So what has been your approach to the sound design and sort of sonic element of the movies? Music has always been incredibly important since day one because we've been, our, our family has a band. It was called Kid California. Now it's called Hellbender. So in, in the musical part, it's, it's really important to us. And we have come to realize, and we realized this very early, that small little music parts to the film can drive the story further down the road very fast. And you can give a lot of information with music yeah kind of like a video you can just pack it with stuff so the audience doesn't have to hear a lot of blah 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 and that really helps with people with our budget because you can tell a lot in a quick amount of time and it can be fun mm -hmm. so that's that's the music question but the sound design question it's always been important to us to have to try to have an original sound design so now that we're in horror like we we try not to have the piano that goes ding 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 you know because it's like it's cool we love the piano but we don't that already is conjuring up too many ideas for all of us because we've all heard it already yeah so we're constantly trying to hear something original keeping our ears open for something original and an example is in hellbender we have a sound that we use that we found from zelda riding through a concrete tunnel and hitting her brakes and the brakes hadn't been oiled because we were out in the Pacific Northwest and it was they were all rusty and they let out this screeching noise inside this tunnel. And it was like, holy shit, you guys wait here. I'm going to get the mics and we're going <laughs> to record that. And we did. And it drives the terror of Hellbender. And all it is is squeaky brakes in a Whoa. concrete tunnel. And it's like exceptional. So that's so just, cool. Yeah. Yeah, that reminds me of, I was just watching Leap of Faith, which is the documentary about William Friedkin making The Exorcist. And he talks about the opening shot. It, the sound from the opening shot is a guy doing that thing on the rim of a wine glass where you spin around it and it goes, Wah! that's the opening tone of The Exorcist came from that. He heard it. He's like, that's how we're opening the movie. Wow. That's so cool. And you know, when you're editing, it's really interesting when you're editing. You can have, I learned this with our first horror movie, The Hatred. We had filmed a lot of, since we were just getting into horror and we didn't exactly know what we were doing, we did a lot of films, like uh, we filmed a lot of ice mm -hmm. and a lot of mountains and trees and stuff like that. Just And when I first got that natural footage and put it up on the editing bay, I was like, ah, let's just throw in some sounds. And immediately... I realized like, oh my God, just the right sound and a dripping piece of ice is terrifying. Mm. And so it's always fun when you're editing and you get a little bored to be like, let me throw up some sounds under this image because you never know what's going to work best. It could be squeaky brakes in a concrete tunnel. It could be the sound of a wine glass or it yeah. could be like a child laughing uh, slowed down. Yep. And being open-minded when you're bored to throw up those sounds 
is is pretty helpful because if you have an open heart, it will tell you when it's the right sound. Yeah, very very cool. Um, what is next for you guys? We are currently working on our next film called When the Devil Roams, Ooh. and uh, it's we're we're like seventy percent through it right now. Right when we finished Hellbender, we were like, all right, we got to get cracking on our next one. Um, because we don't know how to live without making a movie. So basically, this one is about a family in the 1930s. They're artistic serial killers on the carnival circuit. Mm. And something really bad happens to the parents, and the daughter, me, is left to pick up the pieces. And yeah, it's kind of like a cross between Frankenstein and Bonnie and Clyde. And so it's been really fun, like watching those old movies and taking inspiration from them and incorporating our own new soundtrack. It's and we're shooting in the winter right now, which is freezing. Oh, wow. Yeah, that doesn't sound comfortable. Definitely <laughs> sight. Stunningly beautiful. Once again, Mother Nature has been showing up and delivering us some phenomenal acting and you just can't beat her. Yeah. Always just trying to keep up with her. Oh, I feel yeah. like that's such a good filmmaking tip. Instead of waiting for like the perfect lighting or the or what is it, magic hour when all the oh yeah, you know, and all of that, you just gotta get out there and then whatever she gives you, work with it. You know, I feel today like that's huge. Foggy. Let's film today. It's so damn cold with big <laughs> shadows. Let's film. Yeah. Also, everybody is a great actor when you're fucking freezing cold. You've <laughs> actually making a lot of our actors do that because you're just so authentic and straightforward because you're like, get me the fuck out of here. I gotta get this done. I can't feel my fucking toes. Gotta nail the shot. A grim character so well. Exactly. It, it increases efficiency because you're like, all right, it's cold. I, I can only do this in two shots. I'm gonna nail it. <laughs> and there's no artifice. Everyone is just at their rawest self. You know, they're they're not really acting. They're just like, when they when they try they they want to not act so badly that they act beautifully. <laughs> we shot with like again we were using friends so we've got a family to come up for our intro scene where they get all of them get murdered and the mother is the last person to get murdered and she's lying on the floor and we were looking at the footage and she's just like shaking and and she can hardly deliver her lines and I'm like God she's such a good actor and Toby's like she's fucking freezing is what it is. <laughs> Oh, God, yeah. So Mother Nature can get good performances out of people, too. It's so, yes, exactly. And blood looks really good on snow, just saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where do you guys typically shoot? In the Catskill Mountains. Oh, okay, cool, cool. I'm a New Yorker. I'm not that far away. I know how cold the Catskills can get. Um, and how, typically, other than you guys, how what are, are there many other crew members, or what does your typical crew look like? It's really just us, any, you know, part of the, us who are around to be able to shoot. And we're so happy to have Lulu home with us, our, our wanderer world traveler. Um, but uh, we also have a fifth honorary member named Trey Lindsay, who does our special effects. Oh, and nice. he's just a yes man. We adore him. He is the coolest guy in the world. If you want to know how to like blow up grandma and send a shooting in disguise, <laughs> you call Trey and he says, I can do that. I can do that. There's a couple of ways we can do that. <laughs> oh, so that was grandma who, what? <laughs> I said, would you like confetti or chunks of grandma? <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, so he did all the effects for Hellbender then. Yeah, he does all of our really cool effects, and he's great to work with because we do. We tell him what we want. Like we like in like in uh, the deeper you dig, we wanted to cut my head off with a sawzall, and so he likes to be on set for that because he has to composite those images, and it's important for him to try to be as honest as possible. Yeah. Um, because you know, obviously, we can't cut my head off, um, but we want it to look as real as possible. And we want to use as little digital effects as possible. Um, so by having him there, he can get the correct composites together. Cool. Cool. That's very cool to have an honorary member. <laughs> well, I, I'm a big fan of you guys. I'm really psyched to see what you do next. And, you know, thank you for being here. But uh, before we wrap up, any parting advice or wisdom for those aspiring filmmakers out there? Yes. Don't wait for permission. Give yourself permission and do it. Awesome. <gasps> Wise words. Thank you guys again. This was a real blast. Thanks. Thank, thank you. you so much for inviting us. All right. Here are some key takeaways from this conversation with the Adams family. Number one, just do it. Toby, Lulu, Zelda, and John write, direct, act in, edit, color correct, and score all of their movies themselves. Since the beginning, they didn't wait for permission or approval or a deal. Instead, they took an inventory of what they had access to and wrote and produced movies around that. A lot of would-be filmmakers tend to have these big elaborate plans and expensive concepts for scripts that require lots of money and collaborators, when sometimes the best way to get something off of the ground is by using what's right in front of you and crafting a movie around that. Robert Rodriguez speaks very extensively about this in his book Rebel Without a Crew, which is a must-read for any filmmaker. Number two, use Mother Nature as your DP. There's a naturally beautiful aesthetic that comes with using natural light as well as a much more grounded production design. See The Witch from Robert Eggers and a lot of Terrence Malick's early work. Despite its obvious limitations, natural light is free. The Adams Family cites Mother Nature as their best DP and recommends not fighting against whatever nature gives you, but embracing it and working with it and using it to serve your movie. As a result, their movies have a grit and a very natural beauty to them, which gives them a very recognizable and cool cinematic aesthetic. Number three, channel your current state into your writing. After a family crisis, Toby was going through a very difficult time period when writing the script for The Deeper You Dig. She ended up channeling her feelings into her writing, and the experience was not only cathartic, but her emotions were palpable in the movie itself. The Deeper You Dig has moments that are so chilling and so haunting and get so deep under your skin, and it's clear that the movie's power comes from Toby's real and raw emotion. Even Quentin Tarantino stated that if you're not putting your current emotions into your writing, you're doing it wrong. Anyway, guys, really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, why not share it with your friends and family on social media? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor and on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. <laughs>